0: We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1 for two weeks. This week, I was going to try to pack it all in into one week, but I just couldn't do it. And so we're going to look at verses one through 11. Next week, we'll look at verses 12 through 20. And then we're going to take those seven churches in chapters two and three of Revelation and look at them one church at a time. So we're embarking on at least a nine-week study in the book of Revelation chapters one through three. Are you ready? I got one hand clap right there. I appreciate that from my friend Stephanie. So here we go. The revelation of Jesus Christ. We're looking again. Chapter one, I trust that you found it by now. All right. The last book there of your Bible, chapter one, verses one through 11, John writes this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the thing that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him with those who pierced him, And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning. We have worshiped well through the singing of the praises to our great God. We've heard the word read to us already, the first 11 verses of Revelation. We've been able to fellowship together in this tent, in your presence, O God, in a way that I pray would change us forever. And I pray that as we dive in now to your holy word, this last book revealed from the Lord Jesus Christ for the churches of Revelation and every church that would ever open this book and read it, that we would be blessed today as we wanna see our risen Christ be exalted in our time together this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in his book, entitled Miracles, C.S. Lewis makes some worthy comments of the topic of Jesus Christ humbling himself only to be exalted again. He writes this, quote, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and to space, down into humanity, and he goes down to come up again. And to bring the whole ruined world with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower and lower to somehow get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders close quote. C.S. Lewis is saying that God came in the person of Jesus Christ and he humbled himself and then he bore the sins of anybody in the whole world that would repent and believe in him and he carried those sins away on the cross and through the resurrection has dealt with your penalty forever. We're talking about God becoming a human, possibly the most humbling thing imaginable. But what is even more unimaginable than that is that Jesus didn't only come to planet Earth, that he died a criminal's death. Jesus Christ, in the flesh, died on the cross for sinners like you and like me. And it, was, it wasn't because we deserved it. And it wasn't because somehow we had earned his love. He died for us because he wanted to. And he loved us. And I've got news for you this morning, he's coming back. He came the first time, he accomplished exactly what he intended to do, and he's coming back the second time to finish what he started. We've got to be encouraged this morning that Revelation, this book, is telling us a whole lot about the second coming of Christ. In fact, one commentator has written this, quote, Jesus came the first time in humiliation. He will return in exaltation. He came the first time to be killed. He will return to kill his enemies. He came the first time to serve. He will return to be served. He came the first time as the suffering servant. He will return as the conquering king. you believe that this morning? He's coming back, and I don't know about you, but I'm getting ready for it. And these times of 2020 have made me more ready than ever before. There's a familiar story from history that should motivate us to always be ready for Christ's return. One of the most stirring pages of history in the land of England, tells us of the conquests and crusades of Richard I, the Lionhearted. And while Richard was away trouncing Saladin, his kingdom fell on bad times. You might remember that it was his sly and graceless brother John who usurped all of the prerogatives of the king, and he misruled the realm. The people of England suffered, longing for the return of their king and praying that it might be soon. And then one day, Richard came. He landed in England and marched straight for his throne. And around all of that glittering in his return, many tales are told woven into the legends of England. One such legend is that of Robin Hood. John's castles, his evil brother, the castles, they crumbled like cards as King Richard laid claim to his throne, and none dared to stand in his path. And the people shouted in their delight, and they rang peal after peal on the bells. The lion was back. Long live the king. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that one infinitely greater than Richard the Lionhearted shall soon return. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus will lay claim to his throne. I'm here to tell you this morning that he who has been away for a long time is really not away because we know he intercedes for us and he controls all things by the word of his power. But I'm saying in the flesh, in physical sight, he will return. And all of those who've been trouncing... This world, while he's been gone, will pay for it with their lives. Those who have abused the world in his absence and who have told lies about his lordship and who have mocked his imminent and magnificent return will suffer for all eternity. But for those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who walk in his truth and walk in his ways, they will shout with delight And they will lift their voices and say, the Lion of Judah is back. Long live King Jesus. Forget the lion-hearted. Who cares about Richard, right? We're waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. And the book of Revelation changes us. And it challenges us to be ready for that return. And the best way to be truly ready for the return of Christ is to be a worshiper. The best way to be ready is to be someone who's not distracted with the things of this world, but someone who is looking to Christ, loving Christ, longing to be with Christ, longing to understand his revelation. And he's given it to us here in this book. And maybe this day, you know for yourself that you need that return to happen soon, and that you need to see the Christ in all of his glory. And so I just want to encourage you this morning as we dive into Revelation that this book is not complex. It is very simple. You know, sometimes people open up the book of Revelation like, Oh, no, you know, I have no idea what that book's talking about. It's so hard to understand, and there's this, and there's that. I don't even think I'm going to read it. And then you have the other ones of us in the church, you know, the weird ones, who say like, Oh, I love the book of Revelation! You know, I can't wait to read it, the horns, and it's got the wings and the eyes. You know, and those people are a little bit weird, but we love them, right? We love everybody, but we're looking at the book of Revelation this day, and I want you to know this book is not ambiguous, but it is precise. It is not to be avoided, but it is to be studied and to be understood and to be applied to your life. And so that's why I've given you just a little outline. If you do have your notes this morning, I know it's all online. You can go to our website or you can grab the code there off of that podium back in the back when you walk in. But here's the revelation. Here's the the gist of what the book outline looks like. The theme of the book of Revelation is obviously the revelation of Jesus Christ. The theme verse we'll look at closely next week. It's in verse 19 of chapter one. It says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And then if we were to break the book down into a three-part outline, I've done it for you this way. I've taken this from some other resources, but it just says here, main heading number one, the glory of Christ, things which you have seen. And then you see that outline laid out for you, the supernatural revelation of Christ, the sovereign lordship of Christ, the suffering apostle of Christ, the supreme power of Christ, and the sobering response to Christ. We'll look at those first three subpoints of that first major heading together this morning. And then the book, if you continued in it, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, is number two, the church of Christ, things which are. So he's going to be talking about things which have already been things which are, and then things that are to come. And so in the things which are, he's gonna address the seven churches of Revelation, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. He writes seven letters that he wants those churches to read and to apply the truths therein in the life of their church. And then in chapters four through the end of the book is the future plans of Christ, things which will take place. We're talking about worship in heaven. We're talking about a description of the great tribulation. We're talking about the second coming, the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment, and the eternal state of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22, where we'll live forever and forever and forever, and there will be no end. I don't know about you, but I love to think about forever. In fact, we were just a couple weeks ago sharing that concept with my sweet baby girl Zoe who's 7 years old and she kept talking about eternality. and we were having questions about how God's always been he always will be and she's like well how long and I'm like sweetie for those of us who are in Christ we'll be worshipping Jesus forever and forever and forever and she's like well when's it going to be over I'm like sweetie it's never going to be over and she just started to weep she was so moved in fact she was afraid she's like I don't know if I want to live forever how do you do that How can you just keep living forever and forever and forever? And we need to be meditating more on truths like that from God's word that can help stir us up that we live today in light of eternity. And I don't know of a better book to do that than the book of Revelation. And so this morning, we're going to just look at the first 11 verses as I'm going to give you three truths about the glory of Christ. Are you ready? Number one, the supernatural revelation of Christ. Your first blank, if you're taking notes this morning, says the revelation of Jesus. Notice verse one there simply says that, the revelation of Jesus. Jesus Christ. Now that first word in the original language is the word apocalypse, and it's where we get our English word revelation from. So it literally says revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word apocalypse means to uncover, it means to reveal. It means to disclose. It means to unveil. And it's almost like Jesus, even at his first advent and throughout the gospels and throughout the the crucifixion and the resurrection, still had more stuff he wanted to reveal. He wasn't done yet. Even after the ascension and he went back up into heaven, he still wasn't done. And that's why he decided to come back in 95 AD, and to reveal this last installment of the Word of God, the book of Revelation, to John the Apostle. And so we understand here that Jesus is going to both be doing the revealing, and he is going to be revealed. And Revelation is such an incredible uh, book, it's going to add things that we've never seen yet at this point in the Bible. You see, the book of Revelation contains truths that have been concealed, and they have now been revealed in the book of Revelation. The Gospels are about revealing Christ, but reveal him more in his humiliation. The book of Revelation, on the other hand, presents Jesus at the second coming in his exaltation. In Jesus' first advent, he came as a baby. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. He was a carpenter. He entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey. He was crucified. He was was killed. He came in humiliation. He came to offer up his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to die. But in the book of Revelation, we learn that in the second coming, we learn more about Christ. In the second coming, we learn that Jesus came to rule. And not just physically in the hearts of his people, he came to rule also physically over the world as we know it. At the second coming, Jesus returns in Revelation 19 on a white horse, and his robe has been dipped in blood, and he's got eyes like fire and a sword coming out of his mouth, and on his thigh it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the Jesus that we see in Revelation there's such a beautiful picture that he came to reign spiritually and physically. He came to wipe out every foe at the battle of Armageddon. Jesus comes back in all of his glory and all of his power to set up a kingdom that will know no end. And as we look at the book of Revelation, let me just share with you a few places where this book reveals the exalted Christ. Revelation reveals Jesus as the faithful witness Chapter 1, verse 5, as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Also chapter 1, verse 5, as the first and the last. Chapter 1, verse 17, as the living one. Chapter 1, verse 18, as the son of God. Chapter 2, verse 18, as the one who is holy and true. Chapter 3, verse 7, as the holder of the key of David who opens what no one will shut and who shuts what no one will open. Chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus is the amen and the faithful and the true witness chapter 3, verse 14. He's the lion from the line and, uh, from the tribe of Judah, chapter 5, verse 5. He's the root of David, chapter 5, verse 5. He's the one who is faithful and true, chapter 19, verse 11. And he's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords, chapter 19, verse 16. That's how Revelation shows us our Jesus Christ. He's our king. And these references magnificently described Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And there's a big difference between the presentation of Christ at his first advent and at his second advent. They couldn't be more different in the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation. And so this revelation gives the apostle John, look at your next blank there, the revelation was given to his bondservant, John. That's the blank there for your second blank there. He gives it to John. That's what it says, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He must make it known by sending his angel, his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So notice that the revelation goes in verses two and three, or one and one and a half to two, it goes from God to Christ to an angel, to John, to the recipient. The revelation then is ultimately from God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He uses his angel, and we see that angels were involved in the giving of the revelation to John, just as they were involved in the giving of the law to Moses. You want to say, what are angels doing in the Bible? They do a lot of incredible things, but one of the things that angels do is they reveal the word of God, and it tells us that in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, which says in verses 52 and 53, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, and... They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen's reminding the Israelites, God's given you a law, and he gave it through angels, and now Jesus is showing us in Revelation that God reveals part of the revelation through his angel. Now, the revelation given by God to Christ to an angel, and then notice that he revealed these things that must soon take place. So the question is, well, when do they take place? The Bible just says they must soon take place. The word soon can mean in a brief time, or it can also mean quickly. In other words, it could happen in a brief time at any moment, and it also means whenever it does happen, all this stuff is going to unfold really fast. It's gonna all happen quickly. And so, in the context here, it seems to be underscoring this idea of the imminence of Christ's return, which means that it could literally happen at any moment. Now, I don't know about you. But sometimes I've thought, well, maybe this has to happen first before Jesus comes back. Because you hear people saying, like, well, until the whole world has heard the gospel. Or maybe this has to happen before Jesus comes back. Because there's supposed to be a covenant signed between a federation of ten nations with Israel. So this has got to happen. And so you're watching the news and you're looking. And I'm just here to tell you, you know what? It could happen at any moment. There's nothing that we're waiting for. Jesus could return before this service is done. He could come tomorrow. He could come next week. Pray tell that he comes before the election, all right? (laughs) He could come at any moment, and that's part of, you say, well, Adam, which part? The rapture, the second coming, what are you talking about? Look, in one sense, it's called the eschaton. It's a reference to all the end time events. Personally, I believe there's a difference between the rapture and the second coming. I believe that there'll be a rapture where the church will be taken up with Jesus Into the clouds, and will always be with the Lord. Then there'll be seven years of tribulation on earth, and then Jesus comes back at the second coming. And so, when I say the second coming, sometimes it sounds like I'm saying rapture and second coming. And I'm just trying to say to you this morning sometimes it's all lumped together as one big picture, and at other times there are some important uh, differences that are enunciated. But at the same time, it's like, who cares? You might get it all wrong. You can lay out your whole plan. You could be pre-mill, pre-trib, post-mill, post-trib. It's going to happen, and it could happen any moment. You better get that right. Because if you're sitting around thinking like, well, he ain't coming today, so I guess I'm good to wait a day, then you're living in lazy sin, you lazy glutton. Don't be like that, right? I mean, he could come at any moment. You know, there's a story about a couple who had retired to bed for the evening, and as they laid there... They had their heads on their pillows, and the grandfather clock downstairs began to chime, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. But then it continued to sound, 13 o'clock, 14 o'clock, 15 o'clock. And hearing all 15 chimes, the husband popped his head up, startled in amazement, and his wife rolled over and said, Honey, what time is it? And he said, I don't know, but it's later than it's ever been before. (laughs) That's what it's like right now. I'm here in 13. How about you? I'm here in Chime 14. I'm here in Chime 15. It's later than it's ever been. Christ is closer to coming back than he's ever been. That's true about Christ's return. None of us knows the day or the hour but it's later than it's ever been before. And by the way, we're not supposed to know the exact time. We're supposed to be preparing ourselves and to be ready no matter what time it is. The only one who knows the time is the Father who has fixed it in eternity by his own authority. Instead, we're challenging the Bible to be alert. We're challenging the Bible to be ready. We're we're challenged, according to Matthew 24, 42, the claim that God gives that these things will soon take place and they ought to motivate every believer to live holy and obedient lives. And that's exactly what John did here according to verse 2. He testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all that he saw. He was a faithful preacher to the truth of God and to the person of Christ, and this couldn't be any more clear than it is in John's first epistle. So remember, he wrote the Gospel of John. We're saying he wrote the book of Revelation, and in between those, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and in the beginning of 1st John, he's fighting Gnosticism, which was a belief saying that there's no way that God could be in the flesh and the person of Jesus because Because abstract things can be holy. Physical things are sinful. So to say that something holy is in a body which is inherently sinful can't happen. And John says, no, it did happen at the incarnation. And it happened with Jesus Christ. And that's why he says in 1 John 1, 1 through 3, he said, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, if John's testimony wasn't so strong, you might be tempted to think, well, Jesus is just a figment of people's imagination. It's like mass hypnosis, which is one of the explanations for the resurrection. You know, people start to just explain away Jesus as if he was a phantom or a ghost or a demigod. And it's just not true. John is like, no, 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 I was there with him. I saw what he did, I touched him, I heard him, I saw him, and I'm telling you, he's Jesus Christ. He's the real thing. John saw, and he heard, and he touched Jesus. And so there's no one who was a more faithful witness to the life and ministry, as well as to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, than John. That moves us to verse three. Your next blank there says, The revelation blesses all who read and hear. Verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep it, what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, I love that verse, because that's one of the encouraging verses of why we should read the book of Revelation. Somebody already came up to me this morning, said, hey, it's the only book in the Bible where it says you're blessed if you just read it. And I love that. You're blessed if you read it, but please note, it not only says that you hear it, and it says, and who keeps, right? and who keep what is written in it. In fact, at the end of Revelation, it says that again, Revelation 22:7. 7, and behold, I am coming soon, Jesus said. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so I'm saying to you this morning, Placerita, in order to be really blessed, not only do you need to read it, not only do you need to hear it, but in the original language in Hebrew and Greek, the word hear has a connotation, which is something like this, to hear is to obey. If you hear it, means you're going to obey it. If you get it, then you're going to live it out. And that's what Jesus is calling us to here, is not only to be blessed by the reading of the book, which we've done this morning, so we've already been blessed, but the purpose in your heart is like, I want to live it out. I want to live out the truths I see in this wonderful book, and that's why he's setting the table here for what he's going to say in chapters 2 and 3 to the seven churches of Revelation, because he's going to encourage them, and he's going to challenge them. And I don't know about you this morning, but that's what I need in my life. I need encouragement, and I need to be challenged. And that's what he's going to be doing, and we're going to have a grand time discovering it together, particularly in chapter 2 and 3. But let's move, if we can now, to our second truth about the glory of Christ today. Not only do we see the revelation of the glory of Christ, we see here, number two, the sovereign lordship of Christ. In verses 4 through 8, in your next blank there, says the Holy Trinity. In verses 4 through 6, we see a picture, one of many, in the Bible of the Trinity. It says this in verse 4 and uh, 5 and 6, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest." to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verses 4 through 6 give us a picture of the Trinity. We see here God the Father, who is in view several times in these three verses. He's the God of all grace. He's giving us what we don't deserve in the gift of his Son, Jesus Christ. And not only this, we are now called into relationship by the peace that he offers us through his son. And we understand that God is eternal. And we see in this chapter that Jesus Christ is also eternal. In fact, he says in verse 17, I am the first and the last we also see in these verses a reference to the seven spirits who are before his throne. I believe this to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. And I get that from Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, that pictures a lampstand with seven lamps as a description of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, there's only one Holy Spirit, but seven in the Bible is oftentimes the number of completeness or of perfection. We also see here in verse 5 that Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the one who always speaks and represents the truth. In chapter 3 verse 14, he refers to Jesus as the amen, the faithful and the true witness. Here in chapter 5, it says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. That does not mean simply that he was chronologically the first one raised from the dead, but rather that he is the preeminent one, who will never die. There's none like him. He's first among all. He's unlike all. He's the Monogenes we studied in the gospel of John, the only son of God. And we understand that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. This depicts Jesus as the absolute sovereign over all of the affairs of this world. I want you to know this morning that Jesus Christ is sovereign over Vladimir Putin, who is the president of Russia. He's sovereign over President Xi of China. He's sovereign over Donald Trump, President of the United States. He's sovereign over COVID-19. He's sovereign over 2020. He's sovereign over the election. And we got to know this morning that Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord who is in control of everything. And this sovereign Lord has pardoned your sin. If you're in Christ this morning, he can say it's done. It's wiped away. I'm going to treat you just as if you never sinned. And I'm going to take the righteousness of Christ and I'm going to place it on your account because I've taken your sins and I've placed it on his account. And so it gives us incredible encouragement this morning to know that we serve this sovereign Jesus Christ, one of the three Godhead. There's one Godhead, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see here that Jesus there in those three verses, has freed us from our sins by his blood. This came at great cost. This came at an incredible price that Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. In other words, you can't be saved by money, you can't be saved by some king's inheritance. You can't be saved by worldly power, but you're saved, according to First 1 Peter 1:19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb with no blemish or spot. It was Jesus who came, and he saved us. He washed us. He made us new. And not only this, but he made us into a spiritual kingdom that we serve as priests, the priesthood of the believer, that you no longer go through any other mediator. There's no longer a high priest who can only go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. You don't go through a priest. You go through Jesus Christ, the high priest. And then he makes us priests, our servants of God, who also have spiritual access to our Father at any time. 1 Peter 2.9 says, For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. And so we're learning that Jesus has loved us. He has freed us from our sins. He has made us into a kingdom of priests. And then to him, the verse says here, be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are, see, are seeing here the sovereign lordship of Christ on display as he now saves and sanctifies his people. We see God the Father who is eternal. We have seen the seven spirits as a reference to the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and all three persons of the Godhead make up the Holy Trinity. Let's move on to verse 7 in our next blank that says that we also see Christ's lordship on display by those who will mourn at his return. And so that next blank says the terror of the earth. Verse 7, behold, he, we're speaking now about Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail, or mourn on account of him, even so, amen. The terror of the earth. Let me tell you why the earth will be terrified. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, talks about the son of man who will be returning in the clouds. Daniel seven thirteen says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Son of man is a reference to the glorified Christ, you have him as the Son of God and as the Son of Man. Jesus used that title, the Son of Man, more than any other to describe himself because he wanted to make a connection that he's of the ancient of old, that he's a fulfillment of the Daniel's prophecy of 713, that he's the Son of Man who is returning in the clouds. And so here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, John seems not to be talking about the Roman soldiers themselves who actually pierced Jesus, Though they did, but it seems to be a reference, potentially, to the unbelieving Jews who were responsible for the piercing of Jesus. And I get that from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which is a minor prophet that gives a whole lot of more input about the second coming. But in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, he says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns not only for a child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. So Zechariah is saying when Jesus returns, the part of Israel that finally came to saving faith, they will rejoice in the return of their king. But the part of the Jewish people who are still unbelievers and have rejected Christ, they will mourn and they will weep and they will wail. This response is the response of unbelieving Jews as well as unbelieving Gentiles and it will be one of terror The word for mourn here, or wail, at the end of verse 7, they'll wail. Or if you see your little footnote there, it says it could be translated as mourn. Those who wail or mourn here, it's literally to be understood as those, uh, that word could be translated as to cut. Not only to mourn, but to cut. You say, Adam, what are you talking about? Well, that word was associated with the mourning dew. Uh, The the mourning that was taking place in the pagan practices of cutting themselves, such as, given the example, in extreme grief and despair in 1 Kings 18.22, records when the frenzied prophets of Baal couldn't get Baal to answer their prayer requests by fire. Do you remember what they did? They cut themselves. They're mourning and grief, realizing that now their situation is hopeless, realizing now that terror was filling their hearts. And so Jesus is saying here, when he comes back in the clouds, there'll be many who rejoice and there will be many who mourn because they have rejected him as the son of God and as the son of man. And so even so, the end of verse seven, even so, meaning so it is to be. These are strong words of affirmation in the original language. It's the Hebrew word amen in Hebrew. He's saying it's gonna happen. Exactly what he's saying is gonna happen exactly like he says it's gonna happen. This return of Christ isn't talking about Jesus simply returning in the clouds of the sky, like cumulus clouds or nebulous clouds. This is a reference to Jesus returning in the clouds of heaven. And these are the clouds of glory. These are the Shekinah glory clouds that we see in the Old Testament. This is a, a reminder that Jesus will return in that kind of glory, in that kind of setting, which he talked about already in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew twenty-four, twenty-nine through 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And I'm just telling you what a glorious day that will be. The sovereign lordship of Christ seen in the Holy Trinity. It is the terror of Israel's response uh, to his coming. And then we also see here in verse 8 the affirmation. That's your next blank, the affirmation of the Father. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so, while not necessary, it is as if God is giving an emphatic emphasis to these events recorded here in Revelation. God knows it all from A to Z. Jesus is and he was and he is to come, he is the Almighty. Nothing will stop the end from the beginning, just like God said it would happen. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and omega refers to the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And all the possible combinations of those letters attempt to magnify the omniscience of Christ. And God is telling us that Jesus knows everything. His knowledge does not wax or wane, but it is complete forever. Jesus is immutable. He is unchanging. He is unvarying. He is undeviating. He is unshakable. Jesus is permanent. He is entrenched. He is constant. And Jesus' wisdom abides forever. And his knowledge is complete. And his character is steadfast and immovable. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. This ought to give you great comfort today. Just looking at the supremacy of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the majesty of Christ, it ought to comfort you today that the King of Israel will bow to no one, The Redeemer of your soul will never let you go. You had a tough week? Aren't you glad you're at church this morning? So that you could be reminded that Jesus has you in the palm of his hand. There's nothing that could ever happen at work. There's no report you could ever get from the doctor. There's no crash of the stock market that could ever take you out of his hands. It doesn't matter what BLM does. It doesn't matter what's happening in the election. It doesn't matter when this state reopens. You're held in the palm of his hand. Get your eyes out of this world that's focused on temporal things. And look back to Christ and be filled with his love for you. And super you got to go up and above what you're seeing because you get depressed. All you are is a Fox News watcher. Shame on you. You'll get depressed. Fox News this, Fox News that. Adam, do you watch Fox News? Yes, I do. <laughs> but I also turn it off and be like, we got to pray. We got to have our minds renewed. And Sean Hannity can't do it. Much as He tries. So I'm just saying, like, Revelation is all about, like, oh, my goodness, I need to look to Christ. I need to be transcending what's going on on earth because this will pull me down. And if you're falling apart today, be encouraged by all that we're saying here, that Jesus can put you back together. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, he's calling you right now, in this tent, in this sermon. He's calling you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's calling you at this moment. Do you believe that? I'm telling you that on this day, if you're wavering or if you're worried, if you're facing fears, you got to put them on the capable shoulders of Christ. And that's what we're seeing in Revelation. The beauty, the majesty, the strength, the coming, because sometimes we forget he's coming. And we're like, oh no, If a certain political party wins this election. What do we do? they pack the court. What do we do? We pack the church. That's what we do. You see, God's got a solution for everything. And the solution is come to Christ, love Christ, worship Christ, and see his power and just rest in the finished work of the cross. And so this has got to move us on to our third truth this morning about the glory of Christ Number three, the suffering apostle of Christ. There, I'm talking about John. He's an apostle of Christ, and he's having a rough time. He's been through his own difficulty. The next blank there says the pain of tribulation. Just a general reference there to suffering, the pain of of tribulation. Verse 9, look what it says. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Let's talk just for a moment about John's bio. As you remember, he was the brother of James, and they were called the sons of Zebedee. And in their youth, they were also called the sons of thunder. And he had some glorious times when he was privileged, I'm talking about the Apostle John, some glorious times when he was privileged to be part of the inner three, part of those three that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, there was Peter, there was James, and there was John. He was there. And he refers oftentimes, he's referred to oftentimes as the the disciple whom Jesus loved. But note, that John had fallen on hard times. His brother, when he wrote this book, Church History Records, has already been martyred. Persecution had officially set in under the reign of Rome, the Roman emperor, Titus Flavius Domitian. As you see, Domitian had demanded that he was to be worshiped as Lord and God. And when John refused... He was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Patmos is a small island. You could go there still today. It's in the middle of the Aegean Sea between Greece and between Turkey. It's a crescent-shaped island with jagged rocks sticking up out of the ocean about five miles wide and about 10 miles long. And this was like being sent out to the prison in the middle of the water, in the middle of the ocean. This would be like being sent to Siberia. Patmos was a present-day Alcatraz. There was no way of escape. Most likely, John was working in a rock quarry. Some would say that he was even on the chain gang. John is about 90 years old. It's year 95 AD. John knew about tribulation. He knew about persecution. And it had been 60 years since he had seen Jesus ascend into heaven. And there had been no word of Jesus, but surely John remembered and played over and over in his mind what Jesus had told them on, at, the, at the Last Supper in John 15 20. Remember the word Jesus said, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, then they will persecute you. And there's no doubt that John had remembered that in the middle of his difficult, dark, and destitute time, and then in the middle of that, of that end of his life, all of a sudden, there's a surprise visitation from Jesus. In fact, that's your next blank. You can call it the surprise presentation or visitation because this kind of comes out of nowhere. John's been faithful, but he's been persecuted. He's nearing the end of his life. And now in verse 10, all of a sudden, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And so John, it says here he was in the spirit. This is a experience that the apostle John had that transcended the bounds of normal human apprehension. It was the Lord's day or the first day of the week. We know that to be Sunday. And on this day, there was a loud voice like a trumpet. I just want you to know that trumpets were used for various purposes throughout the Bible. In each case, the strong blast of a trumpet signaled something powerful and something compelling. The trumpet was used to signal the presence of God. The trumpet sound was announcing to God's people that God was near, that he was in their presence, and that that trumpet sound would cause God's people to tremble. In fact, in Exodus nineteen sixteen, when God delivered the law to the Israelites on Mount Sinai, it says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And so part of the reason for the trumpet was just to announce the presence of God. The nearness of God trumpled by a uh, signal by a trumpet blast was to give assurance of God's presence as the defender of his people while they were rebuilding the wall. In Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 20, it says, in the place where you hear the sound of a trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us at the rapture the trumpet blast will signal the appearance of Jesus Christ in the sky to take the church back home with him. In First Thessalonians 4, 16, for the Lord himself would descend from heaven with the cry of a command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So the trumpet was also used to signal the presence of God, but it was also used to signal God's people into action or into battle, such as Jericho. Jericho, uh, Joshua chapter 6, verse 20, the people shouted, the trumpets were blown. This is after they marched around the city seven times. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. The trumpet also was used to call God's people to worship. In Leviticus, God told Moses to blow the trumpet to observe a solemn day of rest and a holy convocation. The trumpet was used and sounded on the day of atonement, according to Leviticus 25. The trumpet was also used to signal the imminent judgment of God in Ezekiel 33. It's so all I'm saying is, if you do a little study of the trumpet, it's pretty amazing. The presence of God, the nearness of God, it's time to worship God. It's time to go to war, it's time to go to battle, and there's a warning coming. And this sound of the trumpet in Revelation, I believe, is that of warning. He's going to be warning the seven churches in the next couple of chapters about what is about to happen. And so we understand here that that trumpet call is something that needs to wake us up. That's the intention behind this loud trumpet to God's people throughout the ages. It's a wake-up call. It's a riveting call. It's a piercing call. It's a powerful call to action. It signals God's presence, a call to war, to worship, and to forthcoming judgment. All of this encompasses what John heard on that day on the Isle of Patmos. And keep in mind that John had not heard Jesus' voice in over 60 years, and the last thing that John heard Jesus say at the foot of the cross was, to "Die, It is finished. That's the last thing he heard him say. I mean, I guess he heard him after he was raised from the dead, so the last thing he had heard before he died, but he interacted with them a number of times as we looked the last few weeks in John 21, but the idea here is that now he's hearing the significance of Jesus again, it's, it's a call to worship the risen lamb, and it's a call to action and a call to warning. And talking about the call, one of my favorite preachers, Steve Lawson, wrote a book years ago called The Final Call. In fact, much of what I'm taking from our series in Revelation, I'm getting from his book. But he says here in that book, he writes this, quote, only this same trumpet call... The final call can awaken the slumbering church today. The trumpet voice of Christ must be resounded again today. The sleeping church must wake up and answer her Lord's call to arms. She must jump to her feet. She must prepare for battle uh, the battle that's at hand. The hour is late. The night is dark. The times are desperate. Awaken slumbering church. And I just can't help but think as we read this today, Are you asleep or are you waking up? As we're smelling the coffee here in the book of Revelation and we're realizing that Jesus Christ has made his appearance to John and that he's coming back for his own. And next week we'll look at verse 11 and then unpack the rest of 12 through the end of the chapter about how Jesus is going to be addressing these seven churches. It's going to be an incredible time for us to do this study together. But I just want to end this morning on saying, what about that trumpet call? It could come at any moment. Are you ready to hear the trumpet? Are you ready for the return of Christ? And as we read and study the end of chapter one and these next chapters, I hope that God will do an incredible work in your life. I am personally praying for revival in my own heart, in my own life, as well as in yours. So you better watch out because who knows what God's going to do in this tent for his glory. And as we think about here the end of this sermon I wanted to share with you that when America was a young country the famous French political philosopher by the name of Alex de Tocqueville visited our nation some French philosopher shortly after the revolution okay he visits our nation and he was on a mission to learn what quality enabled a handful of rustic people to defeat the mighty British Empire. And here's what he wrote in his discovery. I'll quote it for you. I sought for the greatness of genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. I searched for it in the fertile fields and the boundless prairies, and it was not there. In her rich mines in her vast world of commerce, and it was not there. Not until I went and to the churches of America. And I heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness. Then did I understand the secrets of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Close quote. That's by an unbelieving philosopher from France who came and made that observation. And I would say to you today that America ceases to be good when America ceases to be godly. And God is calling churches throughout our land back to him, back to his throne in worship, back to him in life eternal, back to him to where you would turn from your sin. And what America needs right now is not a political party, to somehow rise up from the ashes and take back over our government. But what America needs today is the church rising up. That's you and me, people. Rising up in our walk, in our faith, in our love for him. And I just want to know this morning, are you hearing the voice of Christ from his word spoken so clearly to John that we can all hear this very morning here through the scripture? If you're here today and that voice is calling you, I'm calling you this morning after we sing our last song. We'll have a few people up here, and they want to pray with you. I don't know if, uh, if I've told you this or not, but over the last two Sundays, at the end of the service, we've had two people, one each Sunday, say, I want to give my heart to Christ. I'm broken about my sin. And something you said from God's word challenged my heart, and I want to get right with God today. And maybe God's calling you on this morning at this sermon, to say, you know what? I want to be united to the risen Christ. And I realize that this world is a mess and I need to repent of my sins. I'm telling you, there's room at the cross for you this morning. That if you will turn from your sin and you'll turn to Christ and you'll put your faith in him and you'll love him with all of your heart, he promises to save you even on this day. The end is coming. The trumpet will be sounded. Are you ready for that final call? you're here this morning and you're already a believer and you're like, Adam, I'm born again and what are you so fired up about? I'm fired up about Jesus. Come and join me. Lift your hands to heaven. Get rid of your sin. Get back in God's word. Pray for revival. Have your heart transformed. We need a touch of God today and it comes from his word and we're seeing the risen Christ and we would love for you to come forward as well this morning. If you want prayer, if you need help, If you need counsel, we'll be here for you after this final song. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a great morning. Thank you for the opportunity to open the book of Revelation. Thank you for showing us the clarity of the person of Jesus Christ. And I just want to pray, God, that you would forgive me and that you would forgive each one of us who get so caught up in temporal things. We know that our outer man is wasting away. And yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. As we fix our eyes this morning, we want to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporal, and what is unseen is eternal. We fix our eyes on Jesus this morning. We choose to repent this day of those sins, those besetting sins that just keep us from being filled with joy, filled with the hope of our risen Savior. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be more spiritually minded. God, I pray that you would help us to fight the battle this week on our knees, to fight lust, to fight materialism, to fight depression, to fight discouragement, to fight fear, and we can do it because we have a risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in all of your glory. We sing even this last song, continue to lift our hearts to heaven. We want to tell you that we love you this morning. We thank you for your blood that was shed, that we could have new life with you today. God, revive us. Be exalted in the praises of your people. Help us to never be the same. Thank you for revealing to us what you have through your word. May it stir us up as we come back again and again all week long to look to Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen.